Welcome to Awara Wonders Why, a companion podcast to smart enough to know better. This episode is titled Storytime Story 2, 2 Discovery. Discovery. In the last Wild Wonders Why, I'd asked people to submit stories that could be played on the podcast, and we heard some fantastic ones. But more had been sent, and I really wanted to show them off. And so this is the second podcast to show off these great stories. Now, stories don't have to be fiction. We tell stories all the time. Quite a few times I've actually mentioned on the podcast that human beings should be called not Homo sapiens sapien or the wise, wise man, but Pan Naran, the storytelling chimp. Because in every part of our lives, we tell stories. We're always trying to justify things with a narrative from why the sun comes up in the morning, why the animals move around, why every part of our life happens. We create a narrative. Personally speaking, I've had to fight a weird idea in my brain where I try and create the story based on how I'm feeling. Now, I may just be angry about something or just just angry, upset, anxious, nervous. And then someone comes in and says something to me and I get really angry at them because they obviously had said something that made me angry. That's the story that I told. But it's not true, is it? It's I was already annoyed and they just happened to walk in the room. I created a narrative. Now, this narrative also exists in science. To tell science, we have to tell stories. And that leads us to our first story. Science is the way that we learn about the universe, but really there's a lot of story to it, there's a lot of art to it. We come up with an idea and then we test that idea. And then if that idea is wrong, we throw it out and we start something new. This is sort of what science really is. It's a testable hypothesis that we can try over and over again. And so for this part of the story podcast, I need to talk to a scientist and a storyteller. You've hopefully met her before on the podcast, Kat Ross. Hello, Kat Ross. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing very well. Now, for the audience who have never met you before, who is Kat Ross? She's a lot of things. Most importantly, pretty incredible, obviously. Um, so I'm a PhD student based at Curtin University, working with the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research. And essentially, it's my job to study the universe. I try and study galaxies in particular, and I try and figure out how they work. What are they doing? I focus on some weirdly behaving ones and I'm monitoring them to see if I can catch them doing weird things and hopefully explain it. But it's a pretty darn cool job. Yeah. Explain yourself, young galaxy. Why are you doing weird things? You're not my mum. That sort of stuff. So <laughs> you don't know me. Not just a fame. It's right. I'm billions of years old. Damn it. You don't get to control me anymore. Now, the, exactly. la- <laughs> the last time we talked, you and I were hoping very hard for the death mm of a giant mm. red, well, a giant red giant, the uh, the Beetlejuice. Yeah. How did that end yes. up? How, how did that end up for us? Were, were we, we wanted to explode, didn't we? We wanted to, to die. We wanted to explode because it would be phenomenally cool oh, if it, it did explode, yes. um, especially because we were watching it so intensely. So if mm. it did explode, we would have so much information about the entire explosion process mm-hmm. um, because scientists 
obviously love a good explosion. We, we love things going down. <laughs> so we were very, very excited for this. But I had a sneaky suspicion, and I was really hoping that wasn't the case, but I had a sneaky suspicion that what may have happened was that Beetlejuice actually did a bit of a, like, space fart mm, thing. Mm. And as a result, it's farty gas surrounded it and so it started to look like perhaps it was going to explode but alas it it had previously just had a bit uh, of a bowel explosion mm, yes. so, it so happens it's... to us all it's just unfortunate for beetlejuice everyone in the world was watching <laughs> that's right so. so it had irritable beetlejuice syndrome basically it was uh, a <laughs> that's it yes ibs and I'm, we all it watched its <laughs> ibs in the distance and we all marveled at it <laughs> It was awful, exactly. uh, but I, it's so sad. I mean, yeah, I feel bad that we were rooting for the death of a giant star, but but it, then it didn't. And I was like, oh, that's that's boring. And now it's just back to normal. Like it's like, oh, I'm back, guys. Exactly. Did you miss me? Yeah, for a few months it was super exciting, and no one could focus on anything else. And then it was like, oh, just kidding, I'm fine. That's it. So we, that's part of that. We told ourselves stories. We're saying, hey, we think it could be this. It could be exploding. It could be reaching the end. We've never seen the end of a star. <laughs> so we told ourselves a story that, that maybe it's a supernova about to happen. This massive star is going to explode. But it turned out to be a different story, irritable Betelgeuse syndrome, and mm. uh, which is a cool story. And so that means we learned more about this star. Exactly, yes. Still but very cool. We have a lot of information about this IBS event, <laughs> but not quite the event we originally thought yeah. it was slash it's going to be so embarrassing. Is, is it about 5,000 light years away? Is that correct? Is that, that sounds, oh, look, I, I have no idea. It's far too close. <laughs> I'm going to say, way further away. <laughs> 5,000 light years is too close. I love it. Uh, I, let's just say yeah. that if I'm wrong, that's fine. I love the fact in 5,000 years time, when Beetlejuice starts getting the messages, they're going to be like, you thought what? Oh, I'm, oh my God. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> Oh, you people are awful. You're watching? You saw that? Yeah, oh, so, my goodness. And you yeah. all recorded it? Oh, no. Yeah, so that, that, that'll leave you upset. <laughs> so anyway, but stories is what we're talking about today. And you have mm-hmm. a discovery story. You've discovered something, haven't you? Something something amazing and something, something mind-blowing. Can you please tell the audience about your discovery? I guess as a PhD student, you're always hoping to make a big discovery. Like even just as a scientist, you're hoping to make a big discovery. And so I kind of didn't expect that it would happen in my PhD, but you know, lo and behold, here I am. A big part of my my job and my research is creating these images of galaxies. And so I really need to make as many images as I can to make sure they're good quality and especially need to have a lot of them over time so that I can monitor them, see if they are doing any of those weird behaviors. So at the moment, I'm processing obscene amounts of data to make yeah. these images when you say yeah, images of galaxies uh, it's not like a it's not like the, a beautiful hubble shot of a galaxy like a big a big spiral arm galaxy pinwheeling through space with majesty no. and power is it that's not what you're talking about no i'm absolutely not getting images like that at all that's exactly what i was expecting is these beautiful big pictures of galaxies with details and spiral arms uh, i was gypped no uh the telescope that i use the murchison wide field array it looks at really large areas of the sky in one go so in fact one image taken about two two minutes of data we create an image that has around two thousand galaxies in it but they all just look like these tiny little blobs so you can't really see this detail of spiral arms and they're just a lot of blobs Mm -hmm. Uh, it's often referred to as blobology trying to understand (laughs) these images (laughs) <laughs> so that's that's my PhD. I do a lot of blobology. Um, and so for, for my galaxies, I have 15 galaxies in particular that I'm really interested in. 
These ones have previously been known to be acting weird. So I'm just monitoring them. I'm monitoring them for seven different time periods. And each time period, I have around 25 images of them. Each of those images is actually made up of smaller ones. Mm -hmm. So overall, I am making almost 3,000 images of galaxies. And I have to go through (laughs) each of these images and make sure they look nice. Are my galaxies there? And then I can get into the science of what are my galaxies doing? Are they misbehaving? And you're not a doctor yet. You haven't got your PhD yet. So you haven't got PhD students to do all the hard work for you. You are the PhD student doing all the hard work. I have to do this. Yeah, I'm the one that's looking through it, turning through it. So the last couple of weeks, I've just been going through thousands of images, checking them out, making sure they're working really nicely and everything's behaving. But because the MWA can see so much of the sky at once, that's really useful, but it's also very annoying when you only want to look at one galaxy Mm -hmm. because you can often get these other galaxies that are incredibly bright, really big, and they can just ruin the entire image. So because they're so bright, they kind of drown out everything else. So when you say bright, you mean bright in radio waves. So they may not be visibly bright in visible light, but you, the, the MWA, the Murchison Wide Field Array, can detect them. So they, re- they can be really bright in radio or another, another uh, wavelength. Exactly, yeah. So it's radio waves. So we may not even see it with our eyes. It may mm. not be light that we could detect with our eyes. But in these radio waves, they're incredibly bright. And it just bleeds into the entire image. And then it makes it really hard to see anything else around it. So it's like um, lens, Star Trek lens flare in the latest Star Trek yeah. movie. Just like, ah, oh, so much. So ah! lens flare. Yeah. All right. So That's you've it. got yeah. some space That's lens space flare going on. It's another, another favorite, I think. Unfortunately, yeah. Sometimes because the wide field of view, it means we're going to see some of these really bright ones. Mm-hmm. Somewhat fortunately, there's only a handful, probably max 10, that are really problematic. So we actually know them quite well. They're really bright. They're easy to observe and get a model for. So we actually can do some fancy fancy footwork, but fancy science stuff, and remove them from our images and Ooh. make them go away so that I can yep. then focus on the other things that I care about. That's also really important, even if it's not in the image itself, because of the way that radio data is taken, even if the galaxy isn't in the image, it still can bleed into the image from outside which is really unfortunate as well. We want to make sure we know where all of these really bright sources are and we can then remove them entirely from our data so that we get a nice image without these weird splotches going everywhere and I can look at the actual galaxy that I'm... I have been working on this for, for the last couple of weeks. I've been working on finding the problematic sources, making sure when I run this this algorithm and this routine that removes them from my data, that it's actually removed removing the right ones, the ones that are causing me grief, and it's removing them, you know, well. So I've been going through finding the ones that are causing me issues, finding the ones that we know are problematic, and just comparing, making sure they're the same. They were taking all the troublemakers out, taking all the troublemakers out and leaving the ones you want left behind. Yes. Yeah. Anyone that's causing drama, get out of here. Not with those shoes, mate. Get out. That's it. Yeah, absolutely not. No, thank you. So that's been my job for the past couple of weeks, but this is where it gets exciting. Ooh, this is ooh, where ooh. we enter with the source. The source. Ooh. I'm just going to call it the source for now. Okay. We'll get into it because this is what science is. We found a weird discovery. So mm. what's going on? So as I was trying to find where all these galaxies were, one of them was not in this catalogue of of known bright galaxies, which is really weird because it was incredibly bright. 
So it was odd that it wasn't in this list already being that bright. This is where I have to get into my scientific detective (laughs) mindset and really just try and figure out everything about what's going on here. So my first step, I sent the coordinates to my supervisor, Natasha Hurley-Walker, who has a very obscure but incredible skill to know coordinates of an obscene number of galaxies just off the top of their head. <laughs> wow. It's such a random skill that doesn't really come in handy no. in any other circumstance. Nope, nope. But thankfully I was like, Natasha, <laughs> what are these coordinates? Tell me, what is this? And she was like, oh, that's a classic 3CO33. And I was like, of course. Of course it is. Oh, that's problem solved. I knew it's, it. it's C3PO and RTD2. Understand perfectly what you're talking about. No problem at all. But for the people who are listening who wouldn't it. understand, yeah. unlike me, who obviously very much understands. Obviously you understood <laughs> it entirely. Yeah. Yeah. So what what is what is C3PO and what's it about? C3PO or C3O33. Oh sorry, yes, yes, yes. I was testing you on that one. That's good. Thank you. Yes, yes of course. Yeah. This is because you know you know about it. You, oh, you absolutely. It. Very much yeah. so. Yes, yes. <clears throat> yes. So 3CO33 is another radio galaxy. So that's a galaxy that's emitting a lot of radio light, very bright in radio waves, but was found in the third Cambridge catalogue. And it was 33rd in that catalog. Sure. So that's how I get this really exciting name, 3CO33. Got it. Because uh, okay. we're really great at naming things in astronomy. <laughs> so that's it's just a really bright galaxy. And because we know it's a really bright galaxy, amazing. I can now easily remove it from my data, which was my original goal. So problem, problem. so the source, that's it. Problem solved then. You've, you've discovered that the source is this galaxy, the bright radio galaxy. You can remove it and, and you're back to normal. Everything's cool. I wish. Cool. Sometimes the universe doesn't really care about my PhD, really selfishly, (laughs) and it doesn't like to make things easy for me. So it's just a bit rude, but you know what? It is what it is, and that's why we're here. I went to double check that, yeah, okay, Natasha does have a phenomenal knowledge of of coordinates and and galaxies. Mm. So I plotted where 3CO33 was, and then I compared that to where the source was, Mm. and they were very nearby i will give natasha that they were definitely nearby but it was not the same so 3c33 was not where my source was so you could see c333 as well as the source yes Ah. at different spots in the sky yes different points in the sky okay right so it's definitely not yes it's not the same thing these are separate things in your data okay right yeah which is weird because even though it's very nearby that's cool but it's it's clearly unrelated sources. They're not at all the same thing for sure. And your source, so is it brighter than C333? Massively brighter. Ma- yeah. Massively brighter. Okay. So you'd, you'd think your supervisor yeah. would go, oh, that's obviously that massively bright thing and think it was something else. Exactly. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. Definitely would know what this massively bright source is. Yeah, right. Given idea, that's not it, unfortunately. Also means now it's it's going to be difficult to remove it because it isn't one of these bright, well-known radio galaxies. Okay. So instead, I'm still, you know, it, it's there and I don't know what it is, but I figure at the very least I can try and find it in previous surveys and that oh. way I can use the models from these previous surveys again to remove it again. I, at this point, still don't actually care about the source that much. I'm still just trying to get rid of it. Yeah, yeah, you're just trying to kill it. 
Yeah, that's right. I just don't want it near my my galaxies. I don't want it in my data. Sure. So I'm just trying to figure out what it is so that I can get it out of here. Got Even it. though, yes, it's very bright and yes, I don't know what it is. I don't care. It's not one of my galaxies. I just want it gone. <laughs> so I'm still just trying to figure out a, a model to get it out of here. So I compared it with a survey that was taken with the same telescope, but a few years previously. Mm-hmm. So the same coordinates, same telescope, everything about it, pretty much the same. So if anything is going to have a model for this, this source and know what it is, it's mm. this survey. It's called the GLEAM survey for the Galactic and Extragalactic All Sky MWA survey. Okay. So taken with the MWA, Galactic yep. and Extragalactic <laughs> covers a lot of the sky. Sure. Great. It seems like most Everything. of the sky. So we, we only take pictures of what's in our galaxy or outside our galaxy. I think that's, that's everything, exactly. isn't it? That's just everything. That is that's the entire universe. Yes. That's the entire universe. Yeah, you just call it the entire universe survey. Got it. I understand. We just wanted to cover all, all bases. That's all. Be thorough. That's sure. all. I bet. I bet the real story is they they had the word gleam and they desperately tried to fit in all the letters so that it worked. That is a bold accusation, <laughs> sir. And I would be very careful how you phrase the next. <laughs> Astronomers would never do what's called backronyms, where we have the word first and sure. then create the names. We would never. I never. I retract my st- my scurrilous statement. I, I strike it from the record. Good. Uh, yeah. I did actually do some research with an instrument which was called the Visible Aperture Masking Polarimetric Interferometer for Resolving Exoplanetary Systems. If you followed that, that spells out vampires i bet to say it was gonna be vampires that was my guess yes i like that that's very cool obviously by chance by chance totally by chance it's vampires very good yeah nice black lives with gleam by chance yes (laughs) very lucky yeah it's very lucky so i'm looking at the source the source uh, gleam to see what it looks like and what the model is so i can get it out of my images and carry on with my work and I make a nice little image cutout from Gleam and I compare it to my little image cutout of the source. They are very different. Okay. Very different. So my image, I have this giant big splodge right in the middle. In Gleam, there is absolutely nothing. Uh, nothing there. And as so, a trained blobologist, you would have noticed that pretty quickly. Yes, I, I actually had it up on my computer and I stared at it for a solid five minutes because I was like, but it's not, it's not there, but it's here, but it's not, it's not there, but it's, mm-hmm. it might, but it's not in that time. What? So. Did you start having thoughts in your head of I've discussed, I'm going to have it named after me. I'm going I to. I started planning what to call it. I was thinking cat's transient, cat's galaxy, oh, assuming wow. it is a galaxy. Did you start going, wanted- my Nobel Prize, like, thank you to the to the uh, IAU for this Nobel Prize for, for astronomy. I look, I, I many people worked on this, but it was all me. It was all it me. It was me. I did everything here. It was, that- I'm the one that did all the work. That's right. And I, I would <laughs> like to think, you know, everyone, like when you meet, you know, your idol and you want to think that you would play it cool. Mm. I want to think that if I, if I make a discovery, mm-hmm that I would be able to name it something cool, but not clearly so self-indulgent yep. that I'm just going to name it after myself. Sure. But in this moment, I <laughs> did not like cool. I was, I had no self-control. I was naming it cat. I was 
yep. it was absolutely going to be named after me, no questions asked. <laughs> I was really and, and rightly so. I think it's perfectly fair. So. Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely. like it's a very bright source. Mm-hmm. And in just a few years, it's gone from non-existent mm. to really bright right there. Mm. So if you're going to have a source named after you, this is the one. That's, it's yeah. incredible. <laughs> So I have told a few people at this point, I've, mm. I've sent some screenshots around to collaborators saying, mm. I, I don't want to be too hasty, but, but I have revolutionized physics. I'm just telling everyone, I don't want to be too hasty, I but have, I have overturned astrophysics. It's, it's incredible. The work that I've done on a casual, casual Wednesday afternoon, you don't, even, <laughs> you don't even know, dream discovery that I've made here. So I've sent a few messages around to to share how exciting this is. And I'm I'm also considering, you know, my PhD, my next paper is meant to be looking at, at monitoring these 15 galaxies and, and seeing them behave weirdly. I'm thinking that's out the window. I've yeah. discovered this incredible source yeah. out the window. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely going to be following it up and looking at this weird thing, mm. particularly because it's in multiple images at the same coordinates. Right. So I now okay. know that it's not something to do with my data. This is an yeah. actual source in it's, the sky. It's not like a, a broken telescope, like the MWA is stuffed up or the computer did something weird. Or no. it's, This is a source or in I've the sky. I've coded something wrong, which, you know, definitely yep. possible. I like to think I'm good at coding, but that's, <laughs> that's an absolute lie. I, I was thinking it could be any of these things, but the mm. fact that it's in multiple different images yeah. at the same place, it's not me. That's mm. definitely something in the sky. Wow. Uh, and it's appeared, it's incredibly bright, and it's appeared in just a few years. That's amazing. That's, yeah. So I, I, that was it. I was throwing my PhD out the window to, to be able to study. <laughs> Gladly put everything aside. Uh, I have zero <laughs> loyalty to my galaxies, evidently. Did not care about them one bit. No, no fine. You're all dead to me so now. I mean, that's it. Yeah, it's, mm. it's so exciting. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I started taking some notes on the observations that I had to make sure I had a record of which ones I was using so that I could come back and inspect it further and figure out what this source is, what am I going to name it, all of that. So I look at the details of my observation and I make a very important discovery again. Mm. Radio. There's something uh, pretty important about radio, mm-hmm. and that's we can observe any time that we want. The only time you can't observe is when there's lightning strikes. I so I looked at the details of my observations, and I realized pretty quickly I was observing during the day. Okay. And the position of the that source... Shouldn't, that shouldn't matter to a radio telescope. You can... You can- you can look at stuff in the day. That's not because exactly. radio waves yeah, come through the sky. It doesn't matter to you, does it? No, it doesn't. Yeah. No. This okay. is so the, the only real reason you can't even observe optical light uh, during the day mm. is because the light from the sun comes into our atmosphere and it, it scatters around and overall makes the atmosphere very bright. Right. So yeah. then you can't yeah. see anything beyond the atmosphere because it's very bright. Mm. But in radio, the waves aren't scattered in the same way. So it doesn't make the atmosphere bright in radio. So we can still see galaxies yeah. during the day and the sun doesn't affect no us. No problem. So basically you're fine. The source, you've, uh, you've found it in the day, you've got the source, you're doing well. Everything's great. Great. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. position of the source. Yes. Lined up directly with the position of the sun. Oh, no. So it turns out. Oh, no. (laughs) Was alas the sun. (laughs) 
So I am 2.5 years into my PhD. I have over 10 years of experience as a physicist. Mm -hmm. And today or or this week, I discovered the sun. You discovered the sun. I discovered the sun. (laughs) So what are you going to name it? Yeah, well, this is this is <laughs> question, right? This is it. Yeah. And I, I again would like to think that I'd play it cool or I'd, mm. I'd have a an interesting name. I'm thinking this is my my draft that I'll I'll put forward in my paper when I obviously mm. publish my obviously so. Yes. Yes. I'm thinking that I'm gonna call it Are you ready? Yep. The, the sun. The sun. But, Oh. Not the sun. Mm. Okay, it's going to be an acronym because oh, right. I'm an astronomer. <laughs> okay, hit me. So, thinking for like smelly, ugly. <laughs> I can't think of something for the N, but that's, that's, that's it. Well, once you get your Nobel Prize, you can pay someone to do that for you. But no problem at all. Exactly, because I'll be rich and a famous scientist for discovering the sun. I love that. I look. I thank you very much for sharing that story. That very embarrassing story. <laughs> and you have to go and be very nice to your galaxies again now. And say, hey, I, I love you. Exactly. I never, I, I never left back. you, baby. I never left you, baby. I'm here for you. I never uh, questioned it. I wasn't going to leave you. I promise. I, I love just, you so much. I love you so much. I didn't just leave you for something hotter and brighter. I promise you. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't and- dream of it. The worst part was honestly going back to all the collaborators and sending a follow up message saying. Oh. Never mind uh, that fancy thing that I discovered. It's okay. Don't worry about that, it. Yeah, don't ask. Oh my goodness, oh, that don't would be. Ask oh. about it, but it's really exciting. Don't worry. Oh, that would. That's look. As long as someone gets a laugh out of it, I guess it may not be you, but someone I, I did. That's I, it. I think you know. Maybe in the long run, I'll have a laugh. I don't oh. know if I'm quite there yet. Oh no. Um, <laughs> the worst part was, you know, it's been raining in Perth mm. for months non-stop i haven't seen the sun in months this was the first time i'd seen it was in my data ruining everything but you really saw it that you really exactly. really saw it. i really saw it and then about two days later it was beautiful sunny weather in perth oh of course it is you bastard cat <laughs> ross Thank you very much for sharing that story. I wish you luck on your next big discovery. I've heard, I'm not not a research astronomer, uh, I've heard that there's some kind of giant rock that's kind of close (gasps) to the Earth that goes round us once every roughly 28 days. So you might want to go find that one. I know that might be your next one. All right. I'll add it to my my list of things to discover. Next up is is first Uranus, and then I'll I'll Uh, work with Jupiter. Excellent. Uh, And maybe then I'll I'll look at this weird rock nearby. (laughs) Thank you for your time, Kat. (laughs) Thanks for having me. (laughs) When I first heard Kat Ross's story, I laughed and laughed and laughed. It's funny how we look for something, we create a narrative to fit the facts, when actually it turns out it's just the sun. After that interview... I was thinking about what I wanted to call The Sun, the S-U-N. And now, of course, long-term listeners to the podcast know that on the podcast, we call The Sun Chad. But the thing that Cat Ross found, the S-U-N, I'm calling it the Solar System's Underlying Nexus, S-U-N. You may say technically it's S-S-U-N, but be quiet. It's a backronym. I'm going with it. When I told this to Kat, she was impressed, but she decides, as a blobologist, she wants to call it Blob, the Bright Large Orange Ball. Very important scientific discovery there. And see if you can find Cat Ross's discovery of Blob in the sky tomorrow. 
For the second story, we have Eloise Dundas-Taylor back with a very short piece of microfiction. Eye of Jupiter, written and performed by Eloise Dundas-Taylor. Sophie had loved space for as long as she could remember. Her parents would regale her with stories about before she could even walk. She would lay on the ground and obsessively play with her toy telescope. When she was a small child, her father would take her outside just before bedtime so they could stare up at the vast sky and try to count the stars. Sophie vowed that one day she would know the name of each and every one of them, maybe even travel to them. Could that even be possible? Time passed, and as Sophie grew older, so too did her desire for knowledge. She would devour every book she could find on the subject of the universe. Her favourites were that concerning our own solar system. She had so many questions, and would attempt to memorise as many facts as possible. How big was the sun? How many Earths could fit inside it? How far away was the moon? What's the coldest possible temperature on Pluto? But above all, what she loved the most was the planet Jupiter. Largest of the planets, Sophie was fascinated by just how a large collection of gases could form the most formidable object in the solar system. And of course, what intrigued her the most was the eye. A raging storm that had persisted for centuries... Sophie spent hours gazing at it through her telescope, willing it to tell her its secrets. It came as a surprise to no one that when Sophie graduated from school, she went on to study astrophysics. Soon she was one of the youngest and most accomplished scientists in her field, unsurprisingly with a special interest in Jupiter. She even made a name for herself when she discovered yet another of Jupiter's many moons. Some would say that perhaps she obsessed over her passion a little too much. Her nightly routine would involve setting herself up in the back corner of the garden, allowing her the best coverage of the sky. Up would go her own personal telescope and she would diligently map out coordinates in her notebook from one side of the horizon to the other. Some would say she didn't know how to switch off. Sophie ignored them, happy in her passion. How many people could say their hobby and their career were one and the same? Let them make fun. She had the vastness of all creation about her to keep her company. What else could she ask for? On this particular night, she had been taking notes for almost an hour when she noticed the storm clouds starting to roll in. Just as she was about to pack up, Sophie noticed a striking glow near to the moon. Readjusting her sights, she focused in on what she thought must have been a meteor and was eager to log it. She froze. It was Jupiter. But how could that be? At this angle and at this time of year, Jupiter should have been closer to the horizon and further to the west. But this position made it almost directly above her. Sophie pulled away from the telescope and almost comically blinked her eyes and shook her head, then repositioned herself to look through the eyepiece once more. Jupiter. There was no mistaking it. A cold breeze blew through the yard and she heard the low rumble of distant thunder. 
Sophie shivered, and not entirely from the cold. Suddenly, a loud screeching noise startled her out of her revelry, and she spun around to see what she realized was just a flock of bats streaking across the sky. As she watched, she could have sworn that the light of Jupiter had somehow grown brighter, and she looked once again through the telescope. No, no, that can't be. That's impossible. Leaving her equipment where it stood, she raced inside, grabbing her keys and purse and made her way to the car. As she sped to the observatory, she attempted to rationalise what she had seen. It can't have been what I saw. I must be wrong. Perhaps I do spend too much time on my work. I must have made a mistake. It can't be bigger. How could it be bigger? There's no way. Maybe I have been working too hard. That's it. I just need a break. I also need better equipment. Sophie pulled into the car park and hurried inside. It took her ten minutes to set up the equipment and a further ten to set the calibrations. Then she peered into the eyepiece and froze at what she saw. The eye. The eye of Jupiter. The storm that had raged on for centuries had stopped. For the first time in over 800 years, the churning and boiling and swirling of the storm was silent. The eye was perfectly still. And then it opened. Sophie looked into the eye, and the eye looked back at her. Oh God, it's not bigger. It's closer. I always love a bit of cosmic horror. For the final story, let's look at the dangers of trying to invade another planet. Ursa Major, or An Incomplete Record of Earth's Vulnerable Bear Species. Written by Jay Chester and narrated by Stuart Late. The Uron invaders were sure they had it right. They wouldn't be embarrassed like some unprepared intergalactic nobodies. In the tales of intercosmos conflict, beings named the Itri are a cautionary tale. It's said that the Itri leapt over the great filter with the greatest of ease upon meeting it, and set sail among the stars. The Itri diplomats greeted friends with open arms, figuratively speaking, and fought and won against warlike worlds. Countless generations and empires rose and fell across equally countless galaxies. The downfall of the Itri is as awe-inspiring as their ambition, seeking to dominate and possess one largely unremarkable but aggressive planet, an advance mission descended to subdue the population and clear the way for a large-scale settlement. Their catastrophic failure came courtesy of someone who didn't check the embarrassingly basic chemistry and missed that the planet was covered in a deadly liquid. The liquid also existed in the air as vapour, in rivers and lakes, in glaciers, and in the ground as aquifers. Even the planet's organic life forms were more than 60% composed of the stuff, so individual confrontation was out of the question. This blunder caused the Itri an embarrassment even larger than the planet's giant elliptical galaxy. Another legend, told in hushed tones, is about a violent and destructive race known as the Ascari. The Ascari regarded other worlds with cold intellect and envious eyes, taking whatever they wanted. 
Unlike the Itri, the Ascari didn't care for diplomacy and had no regard for friendship. Entire galaxies crumbled under the collective boot of the Ascari, so to speak, because obviously the Ascari had long since evolved beyond needing anything as cumbersome as feet. The Ascari's fall similarly came from their pride. Too busy dominating the planet's dominant life form with their heat rays, the Ascari were so myopic that they didn't account for microscopic life. They didn't even have a chance to retreat. The Ascari won their war, but once overextended, they were gone for good. And so it was that learning from the mistakes of those who travelled on the solar winds before them, the star sailors known as the Uran were confident they had it figured out. Intelligent and impossibly advanced, even Uran infants could squash an Ascari invasion had the Ascari been so careless. Uran scientists studied the chemistry of their target. Nothing concerned them. Biologists checked the diseases and the planet's dominant life form. Again, everything was pleasant. Military minds laughed at the idea that anything would trouble them. The planet's dominant species liked to capture and enslave various other life forms. However, they hadn't even begun to explore outside their solar system, and their planet's oceans were still largely unmapped. Imagine that. In what was considered by humans to be their 20th century, they were hopeless, too busy fighting and industriously destroying their world. Can you conceive anything seemingly intelligent and yet busy fighting among themselves? No great filter was necessary. Had anyone else tried to invade this planet called Earth before the Uran, it would have been effortless. If Earthlings had encountered an Ascari fleet or an Itri force, they'd have surrendered immediately. The Uran's best minds were mostly correct. No viruses or microbes on Earth troubled them. No liquid, gas or solid substance caused them concern. Their intelligence was so beyond humans that Earth's nations didn't stop arguing long enough to unite against the threat. The Uran knew better than underestimating even their weakest enemies, however. Still, the token resistance they received gave humans approximately 90 minutes longer than they might have otherwise known. Research correctly conducted by Uran military leaders concluded that the only possible organized risk to their possession of the Earth would be humans, who scarcely counted. It wasn't as if the Urans were unprepared for other life on Earth. One report suggested that its vast global colonies of ants might over time be a concern, but they weren't an immediate worry. The Uran had more in common with ants than with the great apes. Reports of the Uran disastrous downfall correctly identify that human beings were wiped from the Earth quickly. However, you may be familiar with the insistence from some corners of the cosmos that it was a coordinated effort by the planet's other species that was the invaders' undoing. With magnificently misguided confidence, others assert that Earth's plant life unexpectedly and collectively fought back. Both are comically incorrect. It's typical of beings like the Uran to presume any encountered resistance is organized. The shame and surprise of their inglorious defeat has distorted the truth. The Uran travelled light years in ways that defy comprehension, and other pan-galactic pilgrims struggle with how physics bends to the Uran's will. The Uran knew what roamed Earth's surface and swam in its oceans. 
Their detailed taxonomy was beyond anything earthlings could accomplish, given a hundred thousand years. By any measure or interpretation of intelligence, the Uron have perceptions and senses that seem to violate the fabric of reality. In common with other failed invasions and aggressive maneuvers, they overemphasized organized resistance and technical advances. What doomed the Uron was Earth's bears. They started from an incorrect presumption that humans were Earth's dominant life form. Hopeless humans, with their cities and their space programs, their wars and their ecological collapses, their zoos and their unexplained obsession with zombies. Humans were so backwards they hadn't sent crude mission to other planets and had no defences against intergalactic invasion. They'd also accidentally, and then deliberately, broadcasted their existence to anyone who'd listen, and plenty of worlds who didn't want to hear. Some humans questioned the wisdom behind the metal plates carried by Earth's pioneer spacecraft, designed to enlighten any spacefaring race that might find them. Pioneer's plates identified the time and origin of the craft, including clear directions for finding Earth. Some suggested this could be unwise. Ironically, the plates were scoured clean by cosmic dust before reaching anywhere that would ever host life capable of understanding the crude messages. If anything else on their planet was more threatening than a microbe, the Uron believed that would dominate Earth. It's almost laughable that the Uron considered nothing else on Earth worthy of consideration. They were more like the Eitri than anyone cares to admit. Humans were removed from the Earth in ways that can't be described politely. They were dissolved, disintegrated, dissected, desiccated, and decimated. From there, the Uron spent a great effort securing and stabilizing the planet. In about one of Earth's days, the Uron established a stable climate that suited their biology and needs, carefully rebalancing Earth's fauna and flora populations. Their conquered world was made safe in various ways, helping non-human forms of life to thrive. They didn't expect what came next. The Uron released zoo animals with an abundance of caution. A creature kept in unnatural captivity, the Uron reasoned, might behave unexpectedly. Encountering bears in the wild was entirely different. The first bear the Uron met was the giant panda. With the panda's flat face, large eyes, and round, cuddly appearance, the Uron were unprepared for the soft-looking bear's unbreakable grip. Many Uron were savaged beyond recognition. They then left the pandas in peace. Suppose Uron research had extended as far as the wild panda's mating habits. In that case, they might have chosen not to get close enough to experience its almost unrivaled crushing bite force. The Arctic tundra is as different from the temperate mountains of China as imaginable, but wide-scale Uron losses to polar bears came from a simple misunderstanding. The Uron were unconcerned with fluffy white polar bears because of a galactic lost-in-translation moment with the word vulnerable. Following habitat loss from climate change, the polar bear was classified as a vulnerable species. Instead of at risk of extinction, they were misunderstood as weak and sensitive. After all, humans surely couldn't survive in Arctic environments with anything threatening. Encountering polar bears, restored to population numbers unseen for centuries, the Uron quickly discovered that bears were less 
vulnerable than the word suggested. Technologically advanced enough to travel across and possibly outside the universe, the Uran didn't have the opportunity for feasts in the bear's honour, as might have happened in earlier times on Earth. Instead, their explorers were a light snack for the enormous 700-kilogram hypercarnivorous beasts. Contemporary polar bear opinions on this aren't recorded, but subsequent researchers capable of communicating with Earth's wildlife established that the Uron were considered less nourishing than seals, if easier to catch. After cautiously abandoning the whole of China to pandas, the Uron then declared the Arctic off-limits. While it was entirely within the capabilities of the Uron to drive these bears off the cliff of extinction, they had wisdom enough to understand the roles of the species. The Uran adapted well to traversing the vast vacuum of the universe, but were outside their comfort zone on Svalbard. Shaken by now global reports of bear fatalities, other groups of Uran met koalas in Australia. It was noted that while koalas were bad-tempered, they weren't a concern, and Australia was gloriously declared free from dangerous bears. Their research didn't extend to establishing the koalas aren't bears, and if the Uron had left any humans alive, they might have heard of creatures known as drop bears. Uron scientists reassured everyone no large predators lived on the island, oblivious to the hefty creatures living in the densely forested Great Dividing Range. The drop bear's nickname, Death from Above, didn't appear in their research, and the misleadingly named koala bears left the Uron themselves endangered. The Uron were massacred when these interstellar travellers foolishly ventured near something more dangerous than a black hole, Australia's closed canopy forests and woodlands. Their heads, for want of a better word, were in many cases bitten clean off by drop bears. They abandoned the entire continent. Despite losing large parts of their new planet, the Uron boldly tried establishing themselves throughout North America, South America, Asia, Africa, and Europe. Imagine if North America's brown bears had been more awake when the Uron swiftly killed all the humans. In another universe, the invaders might have used their reality-warping technology to leave before they arrived. As it was, when the northern half of the Earth started tilting towards Earth's sun, the bears were waking up groggy, and hungry. The Uron took precautions in wooded areas should drop bears be endemic across the planet and remained sceptical of anything described as vulnerable, but their initial observations of brown and black bears were disastrously incomplete. Gambling cubs climbed trees, watched by their mothers, and solitary males occasionally intimidated other bears from fishing spots. These all seemed manageable, and even the Uron had an aesthetic appreciation for how cute bears seemed. The invaders began to drop to numbers that could be described as at risk. As polar bears considered their visitors slightly less nourishing than seals, their Kodiak cousins ranked them inferior to wild salmon, but an easy meal is rarely refused. The losses suffered from both polar and drop bears, panda and grizzly bears, black and Kodiak bears, even sloth bears, the latter another horrible naming mistake, risked the Uron's population stability. Concerns over what other bears might exist, combined with many Uron suffering violent encounters with domestic house cats, and the whole invasion was abandoned. A suggestion of relocating to Earth's moon was dismissed when they discovered a secret moon base of intelligent armed bears. 
These bears, at least, were left in peace. One of Earth's greatest philosophers once referred to its location as the uncharted backwaters of the unfashionable end of the western spiral arm of the Milky Way galaxy. Fashionable or not, the Uron never returned. Whether they ever found a more bearable planet isn't on record. Thanks to Cat Ross, Eloise Dundas-Taylor and Jay Chester for their stories. Jay is actually writing a book of short stories called Year of the Bear, where every little story will have something to do with bears, not always invading other planets, but bears in some way or another. So keep a lookout for Year of the Bear in great bookstores near you. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. That's probably the last story time I'm going to do for a while. Unless you want to send in more stories, send them in, send them in, and we may use them on a future podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Be well, look after yourself, and try to look after those around you. Bye-bye. What was that? That's weird. I mean, bye-bye. Yeah, that's much sexier. Well, let's do that one. (laughs)